0: Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello, and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends, old and new, and have honest conversations. Today, I welcome Josh Brown to the Front Porch, an old friend who I haven't seen in a long time in person. And it's great to be able to catch up with you, even though it's virtually, Josh. But thanks so much for coming on the show, and welcome to the Front
1: Porch. Thanks so much for having me, and good to see you, too. (laughs)
0: So we'll tell everybody here in a minute how we know each other, but I always like to start uh, my podcast episodes with the guest having an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about where they're from, maybe something from their childhood, you know, did they have a lot of brothers and sisters or uh, nothing real in depth, but to give people a bit of a feel of who you are and where you come from. So Josh, the floor is yours.
1: Okay. Um, So I was born in Allentown, uh, but then raised in Emmaus um and uh yeah I was raised pretty much you know completely surrounded by family my grandmother owned you know a whole side of a mountain basically and so she divided up all of the land among her children and so I grew up with aunts and uncles and cousins and but they were all considerably older than I was because my mom is the youngest of Uh, the youngest of 10 and there's a 10 year gap (laughs) between her and her next oldest sibling. So, um, yeah, I
0: whenever I I talk to somebody that has a a childhood that's surrounded by older people, I like to, to talk to them a little bit about that. How did growing up around older people affect you looking back on it now, maybe as a kid or thinking about it now as an adult?
1: Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it makes you kind of value, I think some more tradition rooted type things. Um, there's certain bits of nostalgia that are, that are really important to me even today. Um, it made me, I think because you're around a lot of old people, I think I grew up with a lot of superstition too. (laughs) Um, and a lot of, um, you know, the usual kind of talks that normal people don't talk about, like, you know, medical things and, and all of that, that people are just like, what? And even my hobbies are not typically, you know, a 30-year-old st- hobbies.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that. But I, I want to ask you about one thing you just mentioned because I too grew up among older people more than much more than people my own age. So when you mention about the nostalgia thing. Could you talk just a little bit about that? What is what what you, what did you mean when you said that? Or can you give an example?
1: Yeah, um, you know, just certain um, f- tastes and sounds, um, but even bigger than that. And I think that's something that some people might lack. Like, I know that everybody, you know, says, oh, I remember my favorite dish when I was a child and having that, you know, takes me back. But it's a little bit more than just that. It's it's the rhythm to the whole thing, it's 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 the rhythm of, of life that it was then, and then I compare that to now, right? So I'm you know completely distant from that home, um, and living you know nowhere near you know extended family as I was, um, and so there there's a certain rhythm that happens to everyday life, you know going outside and you know seeing people because they're all retired and at home um and you know being invited over into their homes is 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 just different to me it's 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 the senses and the smells and the tastes and all that stuff that I think everybody has but there's also a nostalgia of 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 the way of life as well I think
0: you put into words stuff that has been rolling around in my head a lot recently. I think COVID made us you know, slow down and pause a little bit, and I think a lot of people became somewhat nostalgic over the life that they thought we had pre-COVID, and then living through you know this pandemic, and now hopefully you know on the way out of it. But uh, similar to you, I- I've been thinking a lot about. What nostalgia is and how it pulls on different aspects of, you know, the old, you know, the stereotypical pulls on the heartstrings or makes you sad. But at the same time, it makes you sad in a way that makes you feel good. And it I think it's it to me, it's one of them. It's so fascinating what you know, what nostalgia is to each person and how. How nostalgia affects each person, because it you know it affects everybody a little differently. Um, I and I I I try to talk to my students, my current high school students, about nostalgia. And I maybe it's just that they're too young to understand it or or appreciate it, or that they're growing up in a generation that nostalgia isn't even something that's relevant or on their radar. I don't know. You work with college students. I know. Do, do you do you find that to be the case too with the, with the students that you work with?
1: Yeah, I think they just kind of. I, I think it's it's mostly their their worldview, but it might also be a change in generation. It might be, you know, that people um, people who are seeking out education, I guess today, um, may not have kind of the same uh, growing up patterns. I think that they typically come from you know wealthier families and and might not have that same um rooted aspect of home um that i had and that doesn't mean that you know that that they were somehow deprived in any way it's just it's just different right it's 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 no better no worse i guess um you know just depending on the person but you know i'll always try and tell them things and i know that they roll their eyes at me because you know, I'll I'll say things like, you know, you're never going to be around people your own age ever in your life again, which is, you know, and that's why college is such an interesting part, because you're around, you know, 18 to, to 21 year olds, and that's it. And the students are just like, yeah, whatever, whatever, that's fine. It's like, it's going to be hard for you to make friends later on in life. <laughs> so just, you know, relish that time now. But but that's really only something you get with with hindsight. I think. Too. I think so too. So
0: let's rewind a little bit. Let's talk about uh, go back to high school, Josh. Uh, we're so we're eventually going to find out that you are a professor of German and you have a linguistics background. But to, before we get to that, as a kid growing up, was was language? What drew you to
1: languages? Yeah. Um, well, my grandmother, um, who. Uh, lived with us, Um, she was uh, she spoke Pennsylvania Dutch and she what but she wasn't. She was Pennsylvania Dutch in certain ways, but wasn't Pennsylvania Dutch in other ways. Um, So like the language thing, I think it was more rooted to her childhood and her upbringing, and so she spoke Pennsylvania Dutch really to her siblings. Uh, but not all of her siblings and she kind of spoke Pennsylvania Dutch to her children but not all of her children um and there were certain traditions that she never did like the Belschnickel was something that I never grew up with um I didn't grow up with um you know uh, a variety of like folk customs of the Pennsylvania Dutch either but for her when I never, so I was never really fully exposed to Pennsylvania Dutch as the language until her sister, her closest sister would come to the house and visit and they would sit at the kitchen table. And, and the thing that struck me the most was the way that they talked because my grandmother never talked much. She, was, she didn't share. She wasn't a, uh, an overly, you know, sherry person, overly emotional person. Um, but she would sit and have these long conversations with my great aunt, and I was just like, you know, there's a connection there that she doesn't have with anybody else. And so that fascinated me, and just the way they talked. I mean, not just the language, but my grandmother had this kind of high pitched warbly voice, and my great aunt Eva, her sister, had this really deep nasal voice. And as a child, it was just so comical to me to listen to these two ladies just talk. And they looked, you know, they looked very similar. Um, They just had these weird opposite voices and speaking this language that I didn't understand, that nobody in the household understood. Um, And that kind of drew drew me in to, to wanting to kind of learn the language or at least learn some words. And so my grandmother... Didn't have anything written in Pennsylvania Dutch. I mean, nothing, no like poetry book. It didn't interest her in the least of, of you know, finding one. And, and there are materials, as you know, available, have, there have been for a long time. Um, but she didn't, she wasn't interested in that kind of having those books around and things. Um, I mean, she wasn't really a reader anyway, but um, she had cookbooks and she had this tourist cookbook of like Amish cooking or something. And in the inside of it, they had pictures with the cooking words and they had kind of the Pennsylvania Dutch terms that went along with the cooking terms. And, you know, I was so fascinated with that and made flashcards and and all of those fun things. And I, I would have hoped that she would have, you know, you know, then you know, invited me into the kitchen and cooked with her, and we would have talked in Pennsylvania Dutch. But that didn't happen either. I mean, she was someone who said, "No one is allowed in the kitchen when I'm in the kitchen," which is is, I, you know, she was just a different type of grandmother, I guess. But um, but that was kind of the first the first part that that really planted the seed for an interest in in language. Um, in a different language, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So you
0: went to high school and then went to Millersville, did your undergraduate and decided, well, German, German's what I want to do. And you you really think it was it? I'm sure it wasn't just your grandmother's experience, but what, what else was it about German that you said, this is something I want to invest, well,
1: my future in? Um, yeah. And so that wasn't the deciding factor at all. Interestingly, like to take German, I mean, the fact that I have Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry, that I was interested in Pennsylvania Dutch, that never crossed my mind at all. Uh, I didn't want to take Spanish because my sisters both took Spanish. And my brother was taking German. And I was just like, well, then I'm going to take French. And so I took French and um, and I was I went down to the guidance counselor, I think, and I said, you know, I kind of had signed up for classes and, and I said, you know, could I fit in French and German? And she says, no, you have to pick one. And I thought about it. And there was a lady that went to our church who was the high school German teacher. And we knew her. She was a very good friend of the family and everything like that. And it was just like, well, you know, she's hilarious. I had, I was her, you know, teaching assistant for you know vacation church school for years and years and years and and I adored her and just her whole kind of vibe and things like that and so I said I think I'll take German and so and I so I just decided to do German and see where it went and but it was no conscious decision because of my ancestry or anything um, that I knew about the language that would have interested me that Would have gotten a career or anything it was complete complete happenstance so
0: you so you studied german in high school and then you decided well i'm going to take this farther and go to undergraduate at millersville and and then you had the opportunity to study abroad in germany um what was what was you know in a in a short uh, not in a really long answer, but what was, what did you take away from your time abroad? I mean, that that's a huge question. I know because I did it and I know that I could talk for hours about that. But if you were to tell somebody, you know, like a minute dinner conversation, why, you know, what was the, what, what
1: was, what was so great about you for you studying abroad? What would you say to people? Oh, it was just the experience. I mean, just the, the, the countless experiences, like one after the next, after the next, after the next, because you're so rooted in, in your day-to-day life and everything that happens. And so almost every day, even there, you know, even though there I was in a routine to some extent, every new, every new experience was just new to me. And it was a challenge that you have to adapt to, and you have to get used to. And I think that's hard for people who ha- didn't, may not have the opportunity to go abroad or study abroad for an extended amount of time, is that it's, it's that kind of those new experiences that you have literally every day. I mean, it's, it's not an exaggeration.
0: for me at least no i i agree i agree so uh the next step in your journey was off to penn state uh for graduate school uh Mm -hmm. at at, at what point did you say to yourself i want to make a career out of german and what and and how did you reach that decision
1: (laughs) um it again was just like going into (laughs) undergrad um i had been planning on being a high school german teacher And I was just like, you know, I would love to go back to my old high school and, and, you know, teach German and that would be fun and take over for my German teacher and do that. And my advisor in undergrad um, was just like, well, you know, you like writing these research papers an awful lot. And I do and did and do. And, you know, uh, it's just like, you know, I I do enjoy that that aspect. And so he's like, like, why don't you go to grad school? And I had absolutely no idea about grad school. I mean, first-generation college student, and now someone's telling me to go to grad school. Um, So he kind of, and that would be Leroy Hopkins, who you know, um, and he kind of, you know, pushed me into that direction. Now he would have preferred to push me in the direction of comparative literature. Um, That was his kind of thing, but it was not my thing at all. Um, And so then I said, well, I'm mostly interested in language, so I'll do linguistics. And I didn't, the German thing only probably came about because I ended up at Penn State. I think had I gone elsewhere, I applied to other places um, and one of them was Wisconsin-Madison and I was accepted at Madison. And I think had I gone to Madison, I would have done a PhD in linguistics rather than German. Uh, and probably done more work with like teaching English as a second language type things. Um, But the fact then that I went to Penn State, and they had a German program, um, and not a linguistics program for a PhD, um, that I was just like, okay, well, then I'll just do German. But I really wasn't thinking that far ahead, really, that I was going to be a German professor, necessarily. Again, at that point, you know, when I started, I was really mostly focused on applied linguistics. So I was I was looking at, you know, the teaching, how to teach a language was was my main my main interest in in research techniques.
0: Yeah, you answered a question I was going to ask for people in the audience that have no idea what applied linguistics is or like if I go to college and get a degree in that what what is that? Uh, so you said it's, you know, it's it's basically how to how to teach a language but there is what else is is involved in studying linguistics to somebody that has no idea what
1: that means yeah so I mean linguistics is is the scientific study of language and so um anyone who studies linguistics would study all sorts of things so they typically have a few languages that they work with and they look at everything from the sound system to the structure what we would call the grammar to the lexicon the vocab um to other things like you know Anything we do in language that that we think of as completely just stupid to talk about, like you know, compliments and <laughs> um, making requests and things like that. People people study that, you know, and do comparative research between languages too. And then applied linguistics is basically using any of that theoretical stuff and actually applying it. So, you know, we can learn all about you know. Where you make the vowels in your mouth um, and then taking that to apply it to some situation and the most typical application would be for teaching so how you teach a new set of sounds to students um, in the best way. Yeah.
0: So while at Penn State, you did a lot of field work, which is typical in a, in a graduate studies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that experience, especially what you did over in Big Valley? And we can tell people a little bit about what where Big Valley is or
1: what it is, uh, yeah. please. <laughs> so Big Valley is is technically the Kishik Valley. Valley, um, and it is in Mifflin County. Um, it's part of the Appalachian Hill and Valley region of Pennsylvania and um it's not far from penn state not far at all just you know over the mountains um down 322 and um it's a a very narrow uh, and flat valley it's odd if if no one's ever been there i encourage you to go there it's just strange i mean i grew up in the lehigh valley and i don't know that you could i guess you can tell that it's a valley but In Pennsylvania, I think everything's a valley. Like, I think it's just kind of, you're always going over hills or going down. I don't know. Um, It's very different than here in the upper Midwest, where I know, i technically I live in the Chippewa Valley, but we don't have hills. So I don't know how that works out either. But when you're in Big Valley, you know you're in a valley. Like it's, you see a mountain on one side, a mountain on another, and then there's like a flat two mile um basin to that and that's pretty much (laughs) the valley and so so it's it and that contributes to a, a number of things and one of the big things that I think that contributes to is the fact that there um there was an initial Amish settlement there and over time that amish settlement has split into a number of different anabaptist groups so there are all types of amish that live there there are all types of mennonites that live there um, in addition to you know non-anabaptists as well and what were you
0: studying over there or trying to trying to figure out
1: (laughs) yeah so we worked in partnership with the um the um the Belleville Mennonite Heritage Center. So Belleville is the biggest town in Big Valley. And the Mennonite Heritage Center, which is right downtown, um, the director of it was looking to record um, people's life stories because they, you know, these people were dying, you know, they were getting older and dying in her congregation, and she wanted um, to, to you know record them and and have that be a lasting memory that was around. And so um, she enlisted the help of Penn State since we were you know, nearby. Um, and you know, we brought our equipment, video equipment and audio recording equipment and got to talking to a number of these older folks. Predominantly, um, we focused on the Mennonites and uh, yeah, predominantly the Mennonites at first Um, for the first like seven years. And we did a bunch of interviews. I mean, oh goodness, maybe 90, 100 interviews, something like that. Uh, About an hour to two hours long, just on everything on, we focus a lot on change that they've seen over their lifetime. And depending on who was interviewing, they would ask more about language or more about dress or worship services or hymn singings, or cars or whatever. Um, But, you know, we talked to, you know a bunch of those people um, and uh, it's a really good, it's a resource that, you know everybody can have access to at either at Penn State or at the the Belleville Mennonite Heritage Center Um, because they're recorded, because they're, they're audio recorded you can see the person as well. Um, I mean, that's been uh, 20 years ago now. So all, uh, except for maybe a few of those people that we talked to are, are, are deceased now. Um,
0: can, I, can, I, can I ask you about one step in that process? I'm thinking of from someone that has had little to no contact with plain people before they're listening to this interview and they're probably thinking, and I think about this too, sometimes. So here you are an outsider to that community coming up over the mountain, you come down into their Valley, into their home, you have all this equipment and you sit down and how do you engage some of these people to open up to talk about these things? Cause you know, traditionally or typically a lot of the plain people are uh, removed or you know want to be removed from the regular outside world. So what challenges did you face and how did you
1: overcome them? Yeah. Um so the people the the ones that we focused on in that first part of the of the the actual interviewing things they were mostly uh, more progressive men. Well, there were some conservative Mennonites as well. But no one who would be averse to having their pictures taken or or be recorded or anything like that. Um And, but in a sense still, I mean, living in a a very secluded Valley um, and being older, they were more guarded with some of their information to outsiders, especially. Um, But we would always kind of, I think because we had the director of the heritage center come along with us. um, And she was really the one who wanted the stuff for the heritage center. Um, And she would show up with kind of their like genealogy report and give it to them um, and that was really what we were interested in we weren't interested in anything you know that they would never have told anybody you know we we're just like you know this is great for your for your you know you know your grandkids that come along after this or nieces and nephews or whoever um, and we would always at least for me i would always try to connect in some way on, on something that they were interested in and you always get that after the first few questions right Um, one of the most important parts and you know this as an interviewer (laughs) I can call you a professional interviewer now Um, uh, is that you know you don't want your own ego to take place and by that I mean you know your own ego in terms of your own agenda and so I was interested in getting dissertation research results but I wanted to make sure that, you know, if the person wasn't interested in talking about language use, I wasn't going to push language use, but if they were interested in, you know, oh, we sang out of this hymn book when we were little, and then we decided to get this hymn book, I could still get valuable stuff from that that I wanted to know. Um, and I learned a lot too. I learned a lot, a lot about, you know, four part hymn singing and shaped notes and, you um, and, you know, how to make half moon pies and, and things that I never thought, you know, life skills that I never thought I would need. Technically, I guess I don't need that's it. It's not really a life skill to know four part harmonies, but you never know. <laughs> um, so um, I, I kind of, you know, as, as a good interviewer, just took the back seat and just in the first few, maybe 15 minutes or so, we're just like, okay, they seem really interested in talking about this. And some of the things, you know, took me out of my own comfort zone in talking about things because, you know, I don't know anything about, you know, like raising roosters for feathers for fly fishermen, uh, which is what somebody did. You know, I don't even know any follow-up questions about that really, um, or, you know, questions that, that. Um, uh, you know, were just so foreign to me that, that, that I would just kind of do my best. And, and that's the other big attribute of, of an interviewer is just to be stupid at some parts where it's just kind of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tell me more about that because I've never heard of that before. And, and it can go in really interesting ways, I think. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So you got to spend time
0: with a Mennonite community there during your PhD dissertation times. And then you've, since then, you've done other work with among the plain people, whether Amish communities or Mennonite communities, which, you know, is is unique, of course. And as most, a lot of Americans at least know who these people are. But beyond that, there's a lot of misconceptions, myths, stereotypes. So I want to give you the because I have a couple follow-up questions in regards to that. The time that you've spent now over the years working with these types of people. Um, what, what do you, let me start with this one. Whenever you go into contact with these people, what's
1: something you hope to take away? Um, you know, <laughs> honestly, one of the things that I always want to take away is some way to live life a little bit simpler, <laughs> um, and not simpler in a negative way, but I'm always interested in like because I, you know, envision myself as this homesteader, right? Uh, which I'm not at all, uh, but you know, I'm always, you know, I would be. So touched. And I have been, you know, if if someone is just like, oh my gosh, I have the best peach jam recipe. And I'm just like, I would love that peach jam recipe, you know, or you know, they make the best whatever pie. And it's just like, oh, you know, that'd be great. Or if I'm having trouble you know making bread, I'm just like, I can never get rye bread to work out. Oh, I, you know just come over here, I'll show you how to do it or something like that. So it's, it's the, that's kind of the, the the takeaways for me personally, I think, you know devoid of the research type things. Um, I mean, the research you know you get whatever data you get and you try to you know, do the best you can with it. but it's it's more of those personal connections, right? Um, just recently, (laughs) um, I was with someone and, and, you know, he didn't think I knew what, what brown cherries were. Um, and he uh, was very astonished that I knew the Pennsylvania Dutch word for brown cherries, which I have no idea of the etymology, the Yudakasha, a Jewish cherry. I have no idea why it's, it's called that, but, um, he was so astonished that I knew it, what they were. And then, um, and I was just like, you know, well, what do you do with them other than eat them? Like, <laughs> I just had no idea. And he's just like, oh, my gosh, I'm making this fermented thing in the basement. And you add it to the fresh goat milk that I get. And I was like, well, all right, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Um, so that, to me, is kind of learning new ways that people live is, is always a nice take home, I think. Uh, What are some of the greatest stereotypes
0: about the plain people that are just not true from your from your experience?
1: Oh, Uh, well, the big one is taxes that they don't they somehow are exempt from taxes. Um, I always get that. I teach a really large lecture course on campus about the Amish. And the big one is that they. You know, don't pay taxes. And of course, they pay taxes, right? Um, There's nothing about the Amish that makes them exempt from taxes. Now, that doesn't mean, for example, um, if it's an Amish-owned business, they may not be required by law to pay Social Security taxes. But then the added part of that is they don't collect Social Security. So, But if they're employed by a non-Amish community, they will certainly pay social security taxes, even though they're not collecting on social security. So that's one of them, that the Amish pay taxes or don't pay taxes, they certainly do. Um, Another stereotype is that the Amish are somehow, um, they avoid modern medicine at all costs. And that's really a misconception, I think the Amish are not as quick to go to a doctor as we are in modern America. Um, Probably very similar to rural parts of America um, where people are more reticent to go to a doctor, more rely more on complementary or alternative medicine. Um, But there's nothing religiously that would bar them from, um, from engaging with, you know, the modern advances in, in medicine. Um, and I mean, there are some very conservative groups that won't do certain things like, you know, prolonging the life of a terminally ill patient or stopping the heart for open heart surgery. Some of the conservative groups get a little shaky on that, but, um, but that's one of the stereotypes. Um, another stereotype is maybe that they're stuck in like the 17th century or something like that and I have to remind them you know people didn't dress like that in the 17th century those ways of dressing progressed over time um and they you know they have conveniences just because we don't see them um doesn't mean that they don't use them um that they you know, people wouldn't have used it in the, in the 17th century. It's not like they're, you know, I don't know, creating some weird poultice at home and, and you know, that they have like, um, like a, a large hearth fire with a spit in it or something like that, I think is, is the impression that people get from them. They're stuck in time. Um, they're very much aware of where they are in time. Um, And then that kind of leads to the last one that I'd like to talk about is that um, everybody, (laughs) uh, not only do most people assume to maybe not be experts on these groups, but they assume that they know. And it's, which is okay, because maybe they're under a false impression, but it's when they know better. And whenever someone does that, I cringe in the inside and try to get out of a conversation as quickly as possible. Because it's, it's one of those things where they'll see someone, especially in Lancaster County, they'll see an Amish who they think is an Amish person. Well, first of all, I mean, there are so many different types of religious groups that dress plainly in Lancaster County. If you know they're an Amish person, then, well, you must be an expert on the Amish. Um, but they'll see them with a the cell phone. And they're just like, whoa, they are not allowed to do that. Or they'll see them driving in a car and it's just like, how are they allowed to do that? They should be punished for that. It's just like, what in the world makes you? And, you know, especially if it's someone who's a Christian and I'm just like, you know, they're Christian, you're Christian. And somehow, you know, their religion better than they do. You, You use a cell phone, you drive in a car, but somehow they're held up to this weirdly moral higher standard than the rest of us and that we... It's our job as outsiders to police their every action um, that they're not Amish enough for us or something. It's a weird it's a weird thing that I hear all the time. And as soon as I hear it, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I need to leave.
0: (laughs) So one one last question in regards to the Amish and the and the plain people. And you already hinted a little bit at this, but I wanted to ask you with all of the years that you've worked with these people, what have they taught you? Besides, you said, you know, you learned a couple things about how to live a little bit more simpler. But is there are there bigger things like their 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 speed of life have has that taught you something or how they interact with each other? Has that
1: yeah. taught you something? Yeah. Yeah. Both of those things. I mean, both of those things really hit the nail on the head. Um, there's a stillness that's hard to convey. When you enter an Amish home, there's a stillness to it and it's not, it's something that a lot of people, if they go in for the first time and they're just like, something was really off in that house. I don't know what it was. It's just like, well, there's not like, you know, for some groups, there isn't a refrigerator motor going. There's not like, A computer booting up there's not like a wi-fi that's constantly on there are you know ceiling fans going or a tv in the background or a radio or whatever there's it's just so quiet it's just so still and that i wish i could replicate (laughs) with um but you know i love my things as well so i that won't happen Um, but there's that stillness and quietness and just kind of and that permeates then through the person i think too you know it's it's much more of a stillness sit down and talk a while rather than rushing in and rushing out um and so that's probably been you know one of the biggest takeaways is that it's, it, it, it is that, that stillness in the home, but also the, the connections that are built in the home. I think sometimes, you know, now I don't have children, so I don't know how this is. You have children and I'm sure they're scheduled to death, right? I mean, <laughs> like soccer practice and who knows what else kids are doing, but there's such a a, a gentle, Stillness that happens. I was in um, a Schwarzenegger home just a few months ago, and the Schwarzenegger is the most conservative Amish that we have um, on the planet. And uh, the husband, he had had a stroke recently. And we were talking, you know, and we were just kind of talking about absolutely nothing. I mean, the hay harvest is what we were talking about, the hay harvest over the past few years and wet weather and everything else. And um, he started kind of tensing up. And without even saying anything, his wife, who was in the kitchen, she would look in occasionally, see how he was doing, if he needed some water or anything. And she kind of saw that he was a little tensed up because he had this stroke. And so his muscles were atrophied and all sorts of things. And she came in and she engaged in this, this kind of ritual healing that the Swartz and Trubers do, which is called pain pulling. And you basically, you envision the pain as something physical and you're pulling it out of the person. And she stood there next to her husband and just did this motion over his arm and, had I not known what it was, I wouldn't have known what she was doing. I thought she would have just, she was just standing there like kind of like moving at his arm a little bit, but there was just such a gentleness to the whole interaction that, um, that you know I could learn a lot from. I think a lot of people could learn a lot from within you know a household um, that, that a lot of people don't see, I think, because um, you don't get that kind of intimate space. A lot of times with
0: them yeah so much you talked about there that i would love to just keep talking about because i make this connection with it and i get the chance to go into amish homes from time to time and you're right and when you walk in you know that you're in a different space um and i i, I often connect it to when i would go to my grandparents house because yes they had electricity and tvs and all that stuff but the stuff wasn't always on so you would go you would walk into my grandparents kitchen and really if they weren't talking what you would hear was the clock ticking on the kitchen wall, you know, and and that was it. And you look back on that now in the world that we live in, of course, my God, that trying to find silence, (laughs) you have to seek it out. (laughs) It's,
1: It's a distinct, it's a distinct echo of sound. Like the creaking of a chair will like fill the entire space and you're acutely aware that it's there. And then all of a sudden you're just like, that's because there's no other sound that's happening. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think, I, personally, I think a lot of our society needs that. We need to pull the plug on that. I'm not saying go completely Amish and, you know, get rid of everything. But even if we could take 15 minutes a day and just,
1: just, just let's all sit down. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, the Amish have vices and they have virtues and they have vices too, just like anybody else. They're humans. So, you know, I always say, you know, don't become Amish, but you know, just find ways in your life where you might want to, you know, be a little bit more still with yourself. (laughs) Have you,
0: uh, you know, having worked with these people for so long, is that one of like, is that one of your mantras or something that
1: you you actively try to do? I'm terrible at it. I'm absolutely (laughs) terrible at it. Um, I'm huge on meditation and calming. I'm a naturally anxious person, Um, and so I try to be calm and be still and it, sometimes it's great. And sometimes I'm just kind of swept up in a moment of, you know, getting work done and often it's self-imposed, right. Um, because I think a lot of that, practice comes from socialization throughout your lifetime. And it's hard to go against it. Um, But I think sometimes, you know, we do get addicted to that busyness Um, that's hard to escape from if you're not completely socialized in it. So I'm not perfect at it. And maybe one day I will realize that that's okay. (laughs)
0: Uh, Well, if anybody takes anything away from this conversation, uh, like you said, it's difficult. But let's all just find some time to, to just listen to the clock tick every once in a while, and you might be successful, like you said, Josh, and you might not be successful, and I think that's okay.
1: You could be my parents, who you know have multiple TVs going on full blast because they're hard of hearing now. (laughs) So. I mean, that, you know, that might happen too. You never know. <laughs> Just embrace who you are at that point. There we though. go. That's perfect. Perfect transition. Just embrace
0: who you are and know who you are. That's great. Well, Josh, this has been a great conversation. I like to end all of my episodes with uh, 10 quick questions that I throw out to my guests. Uh, and uh, I'm. I think I know you, but there's a lot about you I don't know. So I'm really curious to see your response to some of these questions. Are you okay. ready? i'm ready all right what is your morning drink of choice water water
1: are you a coffee guy at all no No, i never drank coffee i never did it and then i started doing it because every grad student did it and now all of these you know german you know european professors do it and i just am not i can't it makes me more jittery because i'm i'm anxious all the time so My morning beverage is water. (laughs) That's that's okay.
0: That's okay. Uh, Okay, number two. Who is a go-to musical artist or group for you?
1: Oh, Dolly Parton. (laughs) She is... Dolly Parton, yeah. She
0: I am constantly amazed. Like so I've followed her my whole life and all of her various styles of music, of course. Uh but what really surprises me is I'm working with 17 and 18 year olds today and they know Dolly Parton and Do they? they it's it's unreal. Like she's become she constantly reinvents herself to a certain extent, you know, every couple years and she's been really media savvy here recently, socially media savvy, and she's making herself present. And I have, and it blows me away too, because I'll have kids that are almost predominantly listen to hip hop or, um, uh, yeah, pop music too, to a certain extent, but then they'll pull out a Dolly Parton song. And I'm just like, you know Dolly Parton? And that always engages a great conversation. But no, wonderful choice. Wonderful choice. Although
1: recently, I have to say, because, and this is the Pennsylvania Dutch connection, well, tangentially, I guess, um, is that um, there was someone, I don't know what school he was at, I can't remember, but he wrote his dissertation just recently about um, how he discovered Ephrata music, right? So Ephrata, the commune, uh, the intentional community that's in Lancaster County. And um, that's connected to the German spiritualist movements of related Pennsylvania Dutch troops. But anyway, he found that we have been interpreting the notation of Ephrata music completely incorrectly. Um, and so he and a group of other singers um, sang Ephrata music as it would have heard to the members of the effort of community. And it's on Spotify, it's Word in the Wilderness. And it is so oddly calming to listen to <laughs> um, because there, it's strange that, and I don't know where these musical traditions would have come from because it's nothing that I would be familiar with at all. But, um, but yeah, but I've been listening to that every once in a while if I need kind of a calming sound in the background yeah
0: i'll i'll link that in the show notes because I, oh, I definitely want to check it out but maybe the listeners will too all right great recommendation we'll follow we'll lead it off with a dolly parton song and then we'll right, close you know, with, we'll close with an effort of cloister song.
1: <laughs> right very different but, <laughs> yeah there you know.
0: we go <laughs> from jolene to uh yeah one <laughs> one of those yeah that sounds good all right number three what is a movie that you can watch over and over again and it never gets old oh
1: the dark crystal
0: I'm not familiar with that at all. Dark, what? I, <laughs> Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal from like the eighties. Oh, you know, you said Jim Henson, and now I'm making that connection. But I, I honestly don't think I've ever seen it. No, with and, the, and I'm a huge, I'm a huge Muppet fan. But
1: uh, oh my gosh, you need to see it. Okay, it's that's all, that's on my uh, list. It's like a fantasy thing, which is not my thing at all. But the Skeksis and everything. Oh my gosh, just the best movie ever. All it right, is a great. Movie.
0: That's on my weekend. I'll put that on my weekend watch list. How's that sound, Josh? It's perfect. <laughs> All right. Number four. Uh, and you do a lot of this. So I'll be curious to see what you say.
1: What is the last thing that you read? Oh, um, I so for work, it's boring, right? Because I read a bunch of scientific articles and things like that. But um, for fun, I love Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie is like my go-to reading choice, um, and so the last thing that I read, I reread um, *Murder at the Vicarage*, which is one of my favorite Agatha Christie. Okay, there
0: we go. I saw that there's a brand new uh, version of um, *The Orient Express* coming out. That was an Agatha Christie. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see it. looks Looks good. I don't know if it yeah,
1: how, it how was, true it is. That's a Hercule Poirot, and I'm not a fan of room at all. I'm more okay. of a Miss Marple. Obviously. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone has gotten that impression of that I'm more of a Miss Marple type person.
0: Well, now they do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number five. What is your favorite pizza topping? Uh, green olives. Oh, good choice. I like green olives. Yeah.
1: Uh, laying on the beach or going for a hike? Hike. I hate the beach. Yeah. I'm um, I can- like <laughs> Unless it's like a broody, dark New England beach rock. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I do not like the heat or the Caribbean. Yeah, cool thing. no thanks. Okay, no
0: that's, that's my that's not my cup of tea either. Um, I'm really curious about this question because I know you are a master. Or uh, yeah, I'm going to put that out there. You're a master at this. You've invited me over for dinner. What are you uh, making? Oh my gosh. Um. Huh. Cause I see your posts on Instagram and I see that stuff and I'm like, Oh God, it looks so good.
1: <laughs> see, it would have to be something Pennsylvania Dutch, right? And so it would have to be Pennsylvania Dutch. So we'd have to start maybe with like, um, like a chicken corn soup, I think. Right. Just to kind of whet the appetite. And then um, probably. Oh, See, I love pig stomach. Yeah, and it's because everybody makes pig stomach in a very different way. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe instead of me just making the pig stomach, I'd have you bring over a pig stomach, and we fry together <laughs> pig stomach. Hey, there we go. Has <laughs> just so different, and what you put in it is so different. Um, so yeah something like that and then oh oh the big question what are you making for dessert Josh Brown? Dessert oh my goodness that's tough my favorite thing to make is my grandmother's funny cake well that's delicious I would probably make a funny cake
0: and then I'll have some coffee with it and
1: you can have water how's that sound? Right? Yeah, (laughs) I know I'm totally not the donkey cake pie person that I should be but that's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: What is a dream vacation destination for you?
1: Ooh. Um. Hmm. I would love to go. So somewhere that I've never been, that I'd love to go and see, uh, would probably be Japan. Hmm not Tokyo because I'm not a fan of urban areas like I'm not like all the lights and the electronicy type things but like um somewhere naturey in in Japan would be would be lovely I think I think so too I think so too Josh what's something you're afraid of bats bats okay I love of what bats do for the environment. I'm really glad that they're here and I would love to protect them as long as I possibly can and all of that and I would never kill a bat or do anything to harm a bat. But when they enter my space, (laughs) um, I irrationally, and it really is irrational. I mean, it's um, there was a bat at my house just over the wind, as it was getting towards winter, trying to find a warm place to go. Um, and was just like flying at the window like around my window and I was so terrified of it that I closed my the door to that room rolled up a towel and stuffed the towel underneath the thing and slept in the living room which is completely surrounded by windows that the bat could then <laughs> fly at anyway so it's completely irrational and whatever but I will I will fall to the ground and sob if if there's a bat flying about me. Okay. <laughs> but I love them for what they do. And yeah. I, I wish we had more of them to, like, eat all the mosquitoes and things. But yeah. That's
0: great. All right, last question. What job, other than one that you've had, would you love
1: to have? I would love to work in a museum or archives. I would love that. And... The more that I'm in the classroom with this professory type things, maybe it's a midlife crisis. I don't know. Are you going? We're the same age. Are you going through a midlife crisis? Uh, maybe mid career crisis or something like that. Yeah, kind of. I'm going through a mid crisis <laughs> of some sort. But I would love to come back to Pennsylvania and work in a museum or an archives or do something along that 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 kind of vein. Um, outside of teaching, uh, you know, the subjunctive to German students <laughs> for eternity. <laughs> but I would love, I would, I would love that. <laughs>
0: well, Josh, it has been an absolute pleasure to, to, to get to talk to you again. It's been too long and uh, great conversation. I, I'm sure the audience is going to get a lot out of at least getting a little bit more knowledge about the Amish if they take anything away that, you know, that it, they're not this... They're not this thing that's on a shelf somewhere that we can just stand and look at. It's, there's more to it than that, but you've, I mean, I appreciate your friendship a lot. Uh, and, and hopefully we can continue to, you know, be friends in the future and possibly work together again at some point on a project somewhere down the road. But, uh, thanks so much for coming on the, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, uh, stay warm out there in Wisconsin. And hopefully I hope, I hope that you get the chance to move back to Pennsylvania sometime soon. Um, because in my in my mind, that's home is home is where home is. I know, but at the same time, Pennsylvania is I think is calling you to at some point. Well, Josh, sorry. well, see. <laughs> well th- thanks so much, Josh. We'll be in touch right. soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch.